God speak. Great to have you here. If you need a Bible, we'll be uh, turning in our Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Our servants team have some Bibles. Just raise your hand, they'll get one to you. And we'll be looking at our message tonight, the doctors in the house. I was uh, doing a retreat this last week in Phoenix, and we were around the table, and some of my friends that were at this retreat were uh, tremendously successful people, and they're in their later years, and so they've used their success to help uh, philanthropic endeavors in the Phoenix area. So we were uh, around this dinner table, about uh, eight of us, and uh, the person on my left was sharing that because they donate to, there's, there's two renowned um, hospitals in Phoenix, Barrows and Mayo. So Barrows and Mayo are uh, kind of the, uh, the, the highest in specialists there are in the town. And at the table represented were people that had given uh, significantly to those endeavors. And um, so they have really good relationship with the heads of the departments and the surgeons in those departments. So the person on my left said, yeah, my, my doctor at... <laughs> This hospital found out that I was having back pain, and he had already examined me previously, so I was scheduled the next morning for 10 o'clock surgery. And then once someone across the, the table said, well, this happened, and I was scheduled the next day. Now, most of us average folks, it's going to be four months till you get into the program. You know what I mean? So I was joking with them and teasing with them that I also have great significance in the medical realm. I can get in anytime I want to urgent care. The dock in the box down on the corner. And they don't know my name, but I can get in. <laughs> now they're not specialists and they're not individuals that uh, necessarily are <laughs> the, the highest end in their practice. But when it comes to medical needs, obviously the more urgent your situation, the more desperate your need for a physician, right? And when I was uh, in the fifth grade, I got appendicitis. And my mom thought I had a bellyache for these three days, not knowing it's appendicitis. So when she rushes me to the hospital, the doctor said it's like 30 minutes away from a bursting inside of you. And it was the most it was the craziest ride to the hospital you're ever going to have when you pull white trash like my family. Because... We had this old Baja bug, and this is in Phoenix, and we lived out at New River. Anybody familiar with the area? It's about 35 miles north, and uh, it's just out in the desert. So we've got to get to the free clinic, and we've got this Baja bug with no air conditioning, right? It's smoking hot, and we only have roll down the, the windows air conditioning, but our accelerator cable had broken on the Volkswagen. This is our only vehicle, and so because the uh, engine's in the back, somebody had to sit behind the seat of the driver, who was my mom, to try to get me to the emergency room so that my appendix doesn't burst. And the accelerator cable, they had threaded through into the back seat. And it had a, a little uh, uh, a plunger handle that they had wrapped around with uh, the cable. So my brother, who was a mischievous seventh grader, right, he's got the accelerator cable. And you've got to shift, right, four speed all the way on busy, busy Phoenix traffic. So my brother's back there laughing hysterically, and my mother's screaming uh, hysterically, and, and he's revving it up and pulling it back, and, just, and I'm over there about ready to throw up. And we make it into the emergency room, and the nurse, there's this huge line. I mean, the place is just packed. They're not going to get me in. And fortunately, it was just perfect timing. She told me my appendix is going to burst, and right on cue, I just vomited right at the woman's desk. And she's like, get this young man right here. <laughs> but the more urgent your situation, even if you're trying to get there with some old VW and your brother harassing your mom. So this story in this passage, this starts in Mark chapter 1. The doctor's in the house. There's a healing that happens for a leper, for a lame man, and those who are lost. Let's check it out. Stand with me. Let's read this first part about the leper, starting in verse 40 of chapter 1. Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. 
Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priests, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. Father, we ask... In Jesus' name, Lord, we need your healing every day of our life. We need your spiritual, emotional, psychological, oftentimes physical healing. Lord, I pray for every heart that's in this room and the needs that their life represents and the things that are on their mind as they were driving down the road to come here and as they go to sleep tonight, what they're thinking about. Lord, as the great physician for our souls, I pray that you would move in your power by your spirit to bring your healing touch to each one of our lives. Those are deepest needs that maybe haven't even been expressed with our words, but you see them and we know them. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd meet us in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You may be seated. <clears throat> We first looked at an individual with leprosy that is really limited by his sociability because you see, once you got leprosy, you had to stay clear a far distance from other individuals. And if when you were approaching someone, you had to cover your hand like this over your mustache and yell and scream unclean so people would stay away from you. Leprosy, now known as Hansen's disease, is a brutal, brutal disease that once it begins to work its insidious evil upon your body, it begins to deaden the nerve endings. And so slowly you begin to lose fingers or you'll rub your nose so much you'll just rub it right off your face or your ear or you'll get up in the night and it's dark and you break your toe or three toes and you don't know that they're broken because the nerve endings are numb. They're, they slowly die. And so then the injuries get infected and you begin to have, you know, you pick up a burning pot, which normally you would say, ouch, and let go of it. But now you hang on to it and it has a bad wound. Leprosy has been likened to the effects of sin on us because, you see, sin numbs us and desensitizes us until we slowly begin to give up one part of our life to another part of our life to another part of our life, not even realizing the cost and the consequences of our own sin. Well, this individual... Luke's gospel, who's uh, Dr. Luke, by the way, Dr. Luke says this guy was full of leprosy, meaning from head to toe, he had been consumed with leprosy. And now Hansen's disease, they can give somebody a shot and they can arrest it in its whatever condition they catch it in, it's arrested in that state, but they cannot reverse the effects. They can't bring healing. And having been in a leper colony and with people that have leprosy and uh, being surprised and startled by brotherly love and a big hug by a leper myself. Uh, it, it's not your average day at the office when you're hanging out with a bunch of people with leprosy. But we went to this leper colony in India when I was ministering with trash bags full of shoes because the shoes were for the lepers to put on at night so that the rats didn't eat their feet. Because that because of the, the deadness of their feet, the rats could literally sit there and eat their feet, and they didn't even know. So I don't want to grow, well, I know some of you are not going to have dinner after this, but the reality is, is that this is a very brutal, ugly thing. And this leper, his incredible boldness to approach Jesus that Something about Jesus' love, something about Jesus' attraction, something about who Jesus' nature was made him feel as the most unclean, pariah, social outcast that there is in their culture and society. To be able to boldly come right up to Jesus. And it tells us in verse 40, he came to him imploring him. It means begging him, kneeling down and saying with an incredible prayer, a request and confident faith if the request was granted. For he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. 
Lord Jesus, something I see in you that you are, if you are willing to cleanse me. He's been hearing of Jesus healing the blind and the lame and everybody else. And he brings himself to Jesus' feet in that moment. Now imagine the vulnerability of a guy that's been your distance from your family, from your relatives, from your clot. I mean, you, you, you can't hang out with people, just other lepers, right? So then you begin to gather with people that are like yourself. And in this humble moment, Jesus responds back to him in verse 41. Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he... Uh, had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus touched an unclean man with leprosy. Now, Jesus healed in different ways. He spoke a word. He uh, put his finger in a deaf man's ears. He spat on, uh, in some mud or clay and put it on a blind man's eyes. Jesus heals in a variety of ways throughout the New Testament. And here he chooses to touch him. And I think as he touches him or he embraces him, when was the last time this guy with leprosy has had somebody touch him? Human touch is a, is a vital part of your humanity. If a child, if a child is not, they say, failure to thrive in an infant is because parents are not holding them or taking care of them. Basically, they're healthy. There's nothing wrong with them, but they will thrive not thrive and can slowly die without interaction with human affection. I heard of a guy that was so lonely, he went to get his hair cut every week, not because his hair grew that fast, but because he simply wanted to be touched by another human being and he had no other relationships. Can you imagine this guy and the tears that came flooding out of his eyes as Jesus told him, yes, I am willing, be cleansed. And he touched him, and immediately in that moment, he was cleansed. Now, Jesus tells him something that if you don't know, Leviticus 13 and 14, you, it may be missed upon you. He tells him, he strictly warned him in verse 43, and sent him away at once and said, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, this guy doesn't do that. He goes and he just starts telling everybody. And he goes, it's almost like reverse psychology. Okay, don't, don't tell everybody about this. Okay, I'm going to. Maybe you should turn that around. Now go tell everybody. Then people, he wouldn't have done it. But he wanted him to go to the priest because there was a specific, actually very detailed, lengthy list of sacrifices for the leper to be cleansed. You can read about it, first the leprosy in Leviticus 13, but the sacrifice to get cleansed from leprosy in chapter 14. But since leprosy is incurable, and the Lord, there's only two reports. Well, I should say Jesus healed other people with leprosy because we have a guy by the name of Simon the leper um, uh, later that appears that he was also healed. But Jesus heals this guy with leper, and only Elisha healed a guy by the name of Naaman back in Second uh, Kings chapter 5. And it tells us that when Naaman, who had leprosy, Elisha told him to go uh, dip seven times in the Jordan River, and then he did. And when he came up out of the water, it said his, his, his skin was like a baby's skin. It was like brand new skin from this disfigured, uh, you know, really damaged body into this brand new skin. And that's the picture that you get from the sacrifice. I'm only going to mention a few things because it's quite detailed in Leviticus chapter 14. It says that the leper, first of all, this is, uh, I know that these priests had not recently done this sacrifice because nobody's getting healed of leprosy unless Jesus is sending them there. Jesus heals 10 lepers, right? And he tells them, go show yourself to the priest for these sacrifices. As a testimony to those priests, they got to blow off the dust off Leviticus 14. What do we even offer here? They offered two doves that were to be, one of the doves was to be killed over a uh, jar of clay, over running water, and uh, sprinkled with um, the blood and the water and this they had uh, cedar wood and scarlet and hyssop. It's almost a picture of those qualities that were at the cross. And the one dove is killed over this water and the blood is put into this jar. And then it's sprinkled on the other dove. Now, since you can't make 
a dove resurrect. The two doves were this picture that you sacrifice the one dove, you sprinkle it with water, then you, they let the other one that was sprinkled with the blood and water free, like there's a brand new life that just happened out of this death. And then they were to shave all of their hair, their, even their eyebrows, all the hair upon their body. They were to shave their body from head to toe so that they would look like a brand new baby. You know, babies don't have eyebrows. They don't, it's just like this, uh, just looks like a brand new baby. And then they were to anoint their right thumb, their right big toe, and their right ear with blood. Their, thumb, their ear is cleansed so that they can hear from God now. Their thumb is cleansed so they can do God's work now. Their toe, their big toe is now they're cleansed so that they can go where God wants them to go. And then they're anointed with oil on their right ear, their right thumb, and their right big toe. So now in the power of the Spirit. I mean, it's a very dramatic Leviticus chapter 14 about a leper being cleansed. But it's the picture of a person that is totally riddled and throttled with incurable disease and now restored to perfect functional life in a relationship with God. That's the picture of your life and mine as God has redeemed us. Our lives have been riddled with sin. God has cleansed us. He has redeemed us. Our insensitivity to sin that was really damaging our lives. And now he's, we are born again like a new child in our relationship with God. So, when the man did not go back, those priests did not get the testimony of the sacrifices. Now, he might have done it, but it appears that he's just telling everybody, and now Jesus can't even go into the streets of town because the crowds are so massive. If you have no emergency room to go to in a town, in a village where people are chronically sick, every, I mean, sickness and disease is everywhere all the time. You go to foreign places and you see all these beggars on the street. I was on the, in, in this country and this guy had this elephantitis looking thing like his right leg looked like an elephant's trunk and I mean the guy was you could tell he was suffering so badly and you just see these people lining the streets now if you don't have an emergency room to go to or you don't have the money to pay for that and you hear that there's a Jewish rabbi by the name of Jesus of Nazareth that will heal you everybody's coming to your doorstep right everybody's coming to find you and if they, can't, if they can't get there on their own, you know, limping along, this leper made it. But the next guy can't get there on his own. He's a lame guy, picking it up in verse 1 of chapter 2. And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. So if the word goes out in the village, he's back in Capernaum, and, and he's in the house. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no room, no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. This house, it's a home fellowship, just jam-packed. Everybody's wanting to be touched and healed. When we ministered overseas and we were uh, going from these one, um, their, their slums in uh, this huge city, uh, Bangalore, India, and we're ministering in these slums. But a lot of the little kids in those neighborhoods, they've never seen somebody with blonde hair and blue eyes like my wife. So when we're ministering, they all have dark hair and dark eyes. And the kids just, like, their eyes just get big. And they just swarm Tammy. And, and you know, er, they're, everybody's auntie or uncle. So it's Auntie Tammy, Uncle Rick. And so they're just touching her and they're petting her hair. And she's sitting down, oops, and she's being mobbed by all of these kids. And on one hand, it was adorable. On the other hand, it started getting overwhelmed because the kids are just pressing against her. And... Here is this house fills up because Jesus is in the house and he's teaching the word of God to them. Verse 3, then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. <laughs> Imagine you're the host of this Bible study, Right? Jesus is in the living room. It's just jam-packed. You can't get through the door. There's so many bodies in this room. And these guys have a, a guy on a mat. Each of them are carrying a corner probably. And what determined friends, right? These four friends that are going to get their lame friend to Jesus to have him heal them. They're so determined. They're not deterred by a full house. They go up the stairs that because they're in the Middle East, the roof is basically like a, a, a patio. They go up the stairs that are on the roof. And now... However they are able to do it, they determine where Jesus is downstairs, and they literally tear a hole in the guy's roof. Now, 
They're ripping the roof off the house to get to Jesus. Now that's quite dramatic, don't you think? Can you imagine, you know, the stucco and stuff falling down on everybody that's underneath there? And they're just with big grins filled with faith. And here comes our buddy. They're lowering him down right in front of Jesus. The determination to get to the Lord, this guy's limitation in life is his mobility. Right? He can't walk. He's a paralytic. And when you're paralyzed, whether it's from the whether you're quadriplegic or paraplegic, if it's all of your limbs, and yet these four friends were so determined to get him to Jesus. When you and I are filled with faith for our friends and we're trying to share the Lord with them and minister, and maybe you've got a couple of friends and you're sharing with another friend, most people are going to come into a relationship with Jesus because of a friend or a family member, not from some stranger. It's from somebody they know. Do you know that you will impact more people in your Christian life for evangelism in the first six months of your conversion than at any other time in your Christian life? Unless you go into full-time service. Why is that? Because all your friends are non-Christians. So everywhere you go, it's, I'm still with my old friends. And some begin to love you, and some begin to hate you, and that's the way it works. <laughs> some want to come to church with you and get saved, some don't want, they don't want to hear about it anymore. They like the old you. They're, they're not happy about this new you that's talking about Jesus in the Bible and a relationship with God. But these four friends are stellar friends. Man, you want friends like this. But that guy also was filled with faith. Because can you imagine them shuttling him off and him going, no, no, wait, wait, wait. It's not like he can defend himself, right? Because he's paralyzed. And no doubt, he wants to be made well. And when Jesus, it says in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, on one hand, that's a tremendous statement. But on the other hand, that's not why they ripped the roof off. They wanted him to be what? Healed. They're bringing him because he's lame. They want him to be healed. But Jesus, as our Savior knows, the mo he deals with the most important thing first. He's going to get to the healing, but he deals with the most important thing first. What's the most important thing for your life? You've got some disability. You've got some relational conflict. You have this problem. You have that problem. But your most Desperate need, whether you're aware of it or not, and the people around us are aware of it or not, our greatest need is to experience the restored relationship with a loving God through the process of forgiveness, through what Jesus has done for us. This is my greatest need, bar none. Every other thing in the health of my life is contingent upon that. Psychologists who work with people all the time trying to help them through the conundrums of their own psychosis and difficulties, if they could deal with the issue of guilt, they would solve or help most of their patients. It's guilt. It's regret. I did this. I can't get it back. This happened. You know, it's this guilt that plagues us. And so Jesus, whatever the case was for this man, we don't know what his life was before he got paralyzed. We don't know what the story of his friends are. But when he looks at him, Jesus deals with that which is the priority and says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts in verse 6. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're absolutely right. Jesus is God in human flesh. And he'll tell us in a moment he has authority to forgive sins on planet earth. But as always, when these Pharisees and scribes start thinking things quietly to themselves and not speaking them out, who's reading their thoughts? <laughs> the Lord Jesus. It says in verse 8, but immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Jesus says something interesting. He, he perceives in his spirit their thoughts. They're like, what are you doing? Forgiving sins. Only God can forgive sins. 
And he wants them to know that he has the authority to forgive sins on earth. When I pray to the Father to forgive my sins in Jesus' name, or I pray to the Son to forgive my sins, Jesus has the power and authority to forgive me, to forgive you. And it is your absolute greatest need, and it's my absolute greatest need. Not a one-time deal, but on a consistent basis. The moment I came to Christ and asked him to forgive me for the evil things that I had been doing, but also in the daily cleansing to confess my sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you been burdened by guilt? Have you been burdened by condemnation? Have you been burdened by some of your sins and failures today, this week, this month, this year? Do you have these things that are dogging your life? I've had people through the years, oftentimes in their 70s or 80s, come up with big tears running down their face and say, Pastor, and they'll confess something that happened 36 years ago. Pastor, am I forgiven? Have you asked for forgiveness? Yes. Well, you're forgiven. You can let that go. The burden is off of you. You don't confess your sin and then drag it around with you. The Lord says that he casts it into the sea in the book of Malachi chapter 7. Or Micah chapter 7. He casts it into the sea. You should put up a big sign. No fishing. Don't go after it. Right? Why are you dragging that back up? Because there's something innately inside of us that thinks, you know, unless I torture myself sufficiently, you know what I mean? I, I, can't, I can't just seek his forgiveness and be free of it because somehow that diminishes my sin and failure that I really want to sense and bear the weight of it. Now, I understand that. There needs to be sincere repentance at the gravity of the sin. But when you continue to draw it back to yourself in guilt and condemnation, you're diminishing the power of the work of the Son of God on the cross. He paid the price for your sins. His blood was shed. They drove spikes through his hands and his feet, for heaven's sakes, a spear into his side so that you might have 100% forgiveness at your request for forgiveness. So what you do is you diminish his incredible work by walking in your regret, your condemnation, your guilt, and your burden rather than just saying, Lord, I give this to you. Please forgive me. It's his. You gave it to him. As far as the east is from the west, he so removes it. And that's an infinite line, right? If it had said from the north to the south, that would have been bad news. Because as soon as it goes north, it starts coming south again. It's coming right back to me. But the east to the west, that's a perpetual thing. It's, I'm, ne- it's, I'm never going to catch up with it again. Because the Lord pities us, it tells us in Psalm 103. He pities us as a father does to a child when they fail and when they sin. Right? The forgiveness that's there for them. So, Jesus calls them on the carpet for their situation. He lets them know that this, uh, the power for Jesus to forgive sins is his. But he also has power to heal. Now, to me, on one hand... I think, humanly speaking, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no physical evidence that goes with that. Right? If a person's lame and they're there on a mat and they can't walk, they can't move, and I say rise up and walk and they can't rise up and walk, I would say that's pretty definitive that that's a powerless statement. Right? So if you put those side by side, Jesus says, hey, which is easier to say? Well, only God can say your sins are forgiven. That's true. But you understand that's an invisible exchange. There's no physical evidence with it. But if I say rise up and walk, well, I better have authority to do that. I better have authority to do that. I don't specifically have the gift of healing. So I've never walked up to the person in a wheelchair, grabbed their hand and said, in Jesus' name, come to your feet. Because I just see him falling right to the ground and said, that guy's abusing, you know, disabled people. You better have the faith and the confidence to do that. Jesus has both. And this is the beautiful thing about your king, about your savior, about the one who calls you his beloved, is that he is able to wash away your sins and he is able to heal the needs that you have in your life. You see, for him, they're both equally easy to say. Rise and walk. Your sins are forgiven you. 
That's why it's such an amazing thing to have a relationship with God because there's, there's no other relationship with the Lord Jesus that you can have like this on the planet, right? Even no matter who you love, you can't do this for another person. I can't, I can't declare somebody's sins forgiven. I personally can forgive them for letting me down, but I can't absolve them of their, their sins. Jesus can. I also can't bring a supernatural healing to their bodies unless I have that gift of the spirit of healing, but Jesus can it says in verse 12, immediately he arose, because Jesus tells him in verse 11, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Get up, pick up your mat, take off to your house, something you haven't been able to do maybe his entire life if he had been lame since birth. Or maybe he had an accident. Or maybe he got some uh, disease that somehow affected his spinal cord. I don't know. But for the first time, he's walking away from Jesus. His sins are forgiven because of faith. And he's walking on his own two legs and he's got his mat rolled up underneath his arm. and <laughs> Right? He's taken off. Can you imagine that kind of walk? You know, it's a, it's a great story, but there's a man that's lame from his mother's womb. And Jesus healed him and told him the same thing. John chapter 5. And he gets up and he takes his mat and he walks. Now, he's been lame since from his mother's womb, so he never learned to walk. Right? Little kids learn how to walk. <laughs> he just gets up and takes off, and he's, he's walking home. So I, I guess if Jesus is going to heal you, he, he gives you the walk thing down too, which is a minor request right? in that situation. Verse 12, immediately he arose, took up his bed, and went in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. You see, Jesus' ministry is to touch the individual heart, but it is to be a testimony to those who see lives changed and lives transformed. The Lord saves us, and then that as a witness to other people, they see, oh, if Jesus forgave them, if Jesus healed them, if Jesus can heal that leprosy, if he can heal that lame man, if he can bring forgiveness for, you know, devastating, crushing sin, like he did in John chapter 8 to the woman who was caught in adultery. Right? She's caught in the act of adultery. And all the crowd says, Moses says to Stoner, what do you say, Jesus? Jesus said, you're right, Moses says to Stoner. Now he says to stone the man and the woman, and if they're caught in the act of adultery, I think Biology 101 said they had to both be there. I don't know. The guy must have been faster. He jumped out the window running down the alleyway without his clothes on or something. I don't know. How do you get away? I don't know. But only the woman's there. And he said, you're right. Moses said to Stoner. But I want whoever is going to Stoner right now, I want you who were without sin to throw the first stone. And it says the only time Jesus does this, he bends down and begins to write in the dirt. You who are without sin, cast the first stone. Can you imagine the crowd around Jesus and they look and go, I wonder what the rabbi's writing over there. They get around and they say, oh, he's writing my name. <laughs> Those who are without sin. <laughs> George, last week on Tuesday afternoon, <laughs> I don't know what. But it says, from the oldest to the youngest, they all left because the older you are, the more acutely aware of your flawed sinfulness. And the younger, more arrogance that you have in youth that, hey, I'm all that and a slice of bread. You know, I, I'm not that bad. But older people recognize our vulnerability. We've had a lifetime to fail and sin, and it's sad. But that woman experienced the incredible forgiveness of Jesus. And when Jesus looked up, he said, woman, where's your accusers? She says, uh, they've all left, Lord. I have none. He said, okay, go your way and sin no more. He's telling her, go, but, you know, don't, don't keep living on this lifestyle. Repent, turn, turn from your lifestyle. Go and sin no more. Who can meet anybody on this planet that can forgive you of your sins and heal your broken heart? Nobody. Nada. Zilch. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords for a specific reason. He's the only one that loves to do what he does for his people. And it says, we never saw anything like this. I love the, this statement. I mean, the people are constantly blown away by Jesus. They're like, we've never seen any. Lame people are walking. Lepers are being cleansed. Whoa. 
Now, lastly, we wrap it up with the lost. So we've looked at a, a leper, we've looked at a lame man, now we look at the lost. And it says in verse 13, Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many. And they followed him. He's out by the sea. He's walking along here at Capernaum. And he walks by the tax office, the IRS, right? Your, your favorite institution in America is your IRS, right? April 15th comes. You guys are so stoked about interacting with the government and paying all of your taxes through the years. And just like today, especially last year when they said they're going to have some $87 billion given to the IRS so that they can have some... Uh, outrageous amount of new agents to come after all of us to get more stuff from us. You see, the tax collectors in this time, because he needs a doctor. You see, the first guy, he, the leprosy made him a social outcast. He had no relationship with his family, he had no relationship with friends. Only He only had re relationship with other people with leprosy. The lame man, he was limited by his... Um, his mobility, he couldn't go and do things. But, but you see, Levi, the tax collector, he's, he's limited by his credibility because the Jews looked at a Jewish person that went to work for the Roman government to exact taxes out of the Jewish people as a turncoat, as a traitor, as a, a Benedict Arnold, if you will. They, they looked at them as becoming a mercenary because they became very rich because they would bid, according to Roman law, they would bid, I'm going to bid for this gate of this community and all the people coming in and out, I can tax them on the goods that they, the merchandise they bring in. And I can bid on it and that bid is what I give to the Roman government, but whatever I exact over and above, if I want highway robbery and basically rip them off, I can do that. So all the tax collectors were extremely wealthy from dishonesty. So they're doing this to their own brethren, the Jews. So the Jews hated the tax collector. If you want to say the word sinner, it's interchangeable with tax collector because that's what they, as they looked at it. A sinner misses the mark and the tax collector had missed the mark to be the kind of citizen and neighbor that he should have been as a Jewish individual. Now, you can choose that for greed and for the monetary gain, but what you lose is the love and respect of your neighbors because they know that you're taking advantage. They know that you're getting rich. They know that you're in cahoots as a mercenary with the Romans against your people. They were despised. They were hated. And yet Jesus, as he chooses the 12 apostles, I love the very eclectic group that he puts together. Right? He's got four fishermen. He's got, uh, and some say maybe it's up to seven of them are fishermen, but we know uh, uh, Andrew and uh, Peter and James and John are. But now he gets a tax collector. And then he also gets Simon the Zealot, or Zealot, which means the Zealots were individuals that they were basically uh, political assassins, <laughs> that they hated the Romans. So in a crowd, if they could slash a guy's throat and run off into the crowd, they were zealous for Judaism. So you get a, a tax collector with a zealot on the same team, it's going to be very exciting. <laughs> you don't know what's going to go on. But Jesus puts all of these individuals together to create this incredible group that we call the apostles. But here he's called Levi, it appears in the other Gospels, and he writes the Gospel of Matthew, his name that is given. And some believe that just as Jesus changed Peter's name from Simon to Peter, Petros, rock, that he signed, uh, changed Levi's to Matthew, which means gift of God. You see, God changes, throughout the scriptures, name changes are significant, right? You have Abram, who becomes Abraham. He's going to become the father of nations. Sarai becomes Sarah. And they both have the H sound or the sound of breath, ruach, this, this breath that's inserted into their names for a work of the Spirit in their life so their name is changed. Really cool. And 
How many of you would like to have a cool new name that Jesus gives you, right? And here he has this Levi who he just says, he just looks at him. And I mean, all these people have been hearing Jesus teach. And he just looks at Levi. And this is not like, you know, just follow me to go get lunch. This means come with me. Leave that life behind. Leave your greed, your uh, mercenary heart that you've been just taking advantage of God's people. Now come and be a blessing to give and be generous to people with my love and my, my good news. So he says, follow me, and he chooses to follow him. This is the same invitation that each one of us receive as we follow the Lord. However it comes to us, hey, follow me, right? You're at a church, you hear it on the radio, you hear it on TV, a friend prays with you, hey, you want to give your life to Christ? Follow me. And so he followed him, but as soon as he follows him, this is what happens, right? Because who, who are all Levi's friends? They're all tax collectors. So he has a party at his house. Hey, you guys, guess who I'm? I got the most popular Jewish rabbi in Israel here. He's doing healing. He's doing teaching. Come over for some uh, chips and dip. We're going to have a great time. Now, Jesus and his disciples are there, and they're just eating and drinking with who? The offscouring of the earth for the rest of the Jewish nation. The tax collectors. Your rabbi eats and drinks with tax collectors. And they began to be hateful about Jesus being with them. I love this about Jesus. Jesus is not trying to impress anybody. He's not trying to be on the, the social page of the New York Times with the, the uh, who's who. He's hanging out with the who's he. Right? These tax collectors. I find it fascinating that ultra-religious people so oftentimes have a hard time with people that try to reach out to people that are still living in the old broken sinful lifestyle. So you're, you're reaching out to them. Hey, I saw you out to lunch with so-and-so. You sure that's a good idea? Like, I think it's a good idea. He's lost and going to hell. I was trying to have lunch and share with him. What do you think? No, I just don't think you should hang out with those people. Well, didn't you used to be one of those people? Yeah, but that was years ago. I know. You, you used, isn't it funny how we forget we, we were one of those people? It's you know, the, the converts of yesterday become the Pharisees of today. And so there's people you need to minister to. And, and, and this goes to that thought that you're going to minister to the broadest group of non-believers shortly after you come to Christ. Because all your friends and family usually don't know the Lord. That's what happened to me. We were rodeo cowboys. So all of our friends are rodeo cowboys. They're bull riders and bareback riders. And we travel up and down the road every weekend going to three or four rodeos. And we sleep, to, you know, we sleep in the same place. We sleep in the car. We travel. And everywhere we go, well, when, we, when you get, become a Christian in that kind of dynamic, I mean, you're hanging out all the time. And so you begin to live your faith. And pretty soon there are people like, I don't want to travel with you anymore. And there are other people like, yeah, let's, let's travel together. And it begins to change the, the chemistry and the dynamic. Well, with all of this going on, it says um, at the end of verse 16, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And I love Jesus' response because, you see, the doctors in the house, those who are well have no need of a physician. When Jesus heard what they were saying, he said, those who are well do not need a physician. But those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. On this last thought, as we conclude our message, this is uh, really the, the center of the bullseye of what Jesus' heart is. You know, and he's using this doctor illustration, right? He's healed the leper. He's healed the lame guy. All these guys, they don't have leprosy and they're not lame, but they are broken inside by sin. Right? So all of us are broken by sin. Our hearts are broken. Our lives are broken. Our marriages are broken. Our children are broken. Our families. You know, I t tell people all the time, people that want to play the victim, you're like, I, I come from a dysfunctional family. And I'm like, I'm, I've been living a long time. There's pretty much just dysfunctional families. It's, it's just on a spectrum how dysfunctional they are, right? And... <laughs> I come from dysfunction junctions, so it, it's kind of—it's it, really hilarious to me that people think that somehow they're the only ones 
that came through this really broken life. It just it hurts, and I'm just this adult child of fill in the blank. Adult child of the alcoholic or the drug addict. Or, yeah, I'm like, welcome to the club. Right? Welcome to a world of brokenness with broken people. No family's got it all wired. Everybody's got issues. And, I mean, it's a rarity, like one out of a hundred. When I hang out with a family that is, is really well-adjusted, I'm usually kind of shocked. Like, wow, this is an oddity. They should put them in a museum. <laughs> they kind of got this thing figured out because everybody else around them is a total train wreck. But you see, well people, people that are well and healthy, don't need doctors. Now, I know they have this thing today, wellness visits, right? Wellness visits. Now, if your insurance pays for it, that's great. But uh, I've never went to a wellness visit in my life. Because if I'm sick, I'll go pay the doctor, but I'm not paying him for anything else, right? If I'm sick, I'm going to go pay the doctor. But I have to be sick, and usually sick for a significant period of time, till my wife's finally, like, you know, how long are you going to wait till you go to the doctor? Well, I think I'm going to go. She said, you said that three weeks ago. <laughs> but I have to be forced by my condition to make an appointment or to go to the doctor. You know, it is your sin and your brokenness, and when things fall apart and your marriage fails and you lose the job and your health goes south and when your kids are off the rails, when you get into the place that you're like, whoa, I, we need a doctor, right? This is like 911. There's been a massive car wreck, so to speak, in our family, relationally speaking. And we need a doctor. For years... We would have people, because our church was known for, <laughs> we had a joke on our staff. We didn't say it too much publicly. But our church, you know, 2,500 to 3,000 people, we called it M&M, meth addicts and Mormons. That's all that were getting saved at our church. And so everything in between. We had, we had all the, the, the criminals, and then we had uh, law enforcement in our church. One, <laughs> one service, I said, if you've ever been in trouble with the law, raise your hands. So many hands went up. I said, put them down, put them down. The good people are going to run. But there's all these, all these broken lives. Why, why are they in the room? Because they need a doctor. Right? They need a doctor. And they know they need a doctor. And it's the people out there that, you know, you're working with in your family. That they don't think they need a doctor. They're fine. Right? How many of you have somebody that you've tried to share Jesus and they say they're fine? And they say something like this to you. Well, that's nice for you. Don't you love that one? That's good for you. I'm glad you're doing the Jesus thing. Because, you know, weak, helpless people like you need the Jesus thing. And you smile, you know, everybody needs the Jesus thing. Especially when you see him face to face and you've stepped into eternity. You want him to be, you want to have that doctor's appointment, right? <laughs> you want to know that Jesus is there. But you see, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those who consider themselves righteous... Let's just say for a moment, there's somebody here in the room that's a bit delusional. By that I mean, you think you're perfect. Because it requires perfection to go to heaven. You know that, right? You can't go to heaven without being perfect. So if you've ever sinned once in your entire life, that's enough to keep you out. Only perfection can go to heaven. That's why Jesus' sinless sacrifice conveys to you his perfection so that you can go to his heaven. But the people that claim that they're righteous, that you don't need Jesus. I had a chance recently in a couple of different dinner situations to be seated next to somebody that was asking earnest, sincere questions at dinner. It was very much kind of like a, a Matthew to tax collector kind of dinner over these last couple of months. And uh, we're there and, and um, you know, half the people are not Christians, but they're, they're wondering what this thing's all about. And as we're, we're talking, I had a couple of very fascinating conversations with people about the need for them to come into a surrendered relationship with Jesus. Specifically, one a while back with a dear friend of mine, a woman who's very precious to me as a friend. And I was sharing with her. She's like, I'm just not there yet, Rick. And I said, what do you mean? 
She's like, well, you're there and I'm not there. I said, what do you mean? And I said, okay, let's just back up. I said, do you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins? She said, hesitantly, yes, I think so. I said, great. Now the Bible says if you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. I said, do you believe God raised him from the dead? She says, that's where I have a problem. She says, I don't think the dead can be raised to life. And I said, well, that's the miracle, right? So she has half the equation. I said, it means nothing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins if he didn't conquer death and rise from the dead because he's just a dead savior that's no good anyway, right? It doesn't do anything. But the conundrum for many people that I interact with is they simply do not believe that they're a person that needs forgiveness because they're just good people. And Jesus said, I didn't come for you. Now, honestly, he came for you, but it's that you don't see your need. So he's coming for people that realize they're sick. He's coming for people that realize they have the symptoms of sin and sickness and death, and they need a cure. They need somebody to heal them. And those are the only people that are going to seek the Savior to get saved because they're the only ones looking. They're the only ones that want to make a doctor's appointment. But fortunately for us, the doctor's in the house 24-7 every day of our lives and even here tonight. Let's pray as we close. Lord, thank you for your incredible love. We pray that your spirit would move on hearts right now. Lord, I, I know that there are some maybe here tonight that they just haven't seen their need. And Jesus, you said you didn't come to save the righteous, but for sinners. And I pray in this moment that your spirit would draw their hearts into a place to surrender to you, to realize, bring awareness, bring an acute reality of the sickness of sin and brokenness in their lives that they cry out to you. I just want to invite you, if you want to open your heart by faith, as the Lord invites you to be your good physician, to forgive you of your sins, to heal your broken heart, and to bring a transformation to your life, that you would pray with me right now. Just open your heart to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. I realize tonight that I need you. I realize you died on the cross for me and that you rose from the dead to conquer death. Lord, that's what I need, your forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. I trust you as my savior tonight, Lord. I surrender to you. Empower me with your spirit that I might have the strength to live for you.